This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, today we complete our series in 1 Peter. As you see, that was the end of the letter. And you think about when you write a letter, we've been in 1 Peter, this is the 17th week. And you think about, they would have heard the letter all at one time, read out loud. And Peter concludes his letter, what do you think, with the very things that he wants them most to remember, the things that bring everything together. And he tells them to be humble. And if you were here two weeks ago, Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 5, Mike Allen preached on those, and he, he talked specifically to the leaders and told them to be humble, but then in this passage, he says, but all of you also are to be humble. Now, I want you to think of someone that you think is truly great, someone who's had a lasting impact, influence in your life, someone whose legacy lives on in you. Think about that person. Bring them to mind. What were they like? Think about characteristics of them. And I think if you can imagine that person who, whose legacy lives on in you, who had a lasting impact in your life, the types of characteristics that you saw as worthy of emulation in them that had the impact on you would be characteristics that the Bible described as humble. Uh, Leah, I know what she would say if I know what she thought. I know who she thought of. She didn't even have to tell me, and I didn't even tell her that that was going to be the way I started the sermon, but I know exactly who she thought of when I said, who has had a lasting impact on your life? And there are more than one, of course, but the one that she thought of, I promise, was her grandfather. Uh, Granddan is what we called him. He passed away three years ago last month, and I knew Granddan for seven years, the first seven years of our marriage. And he is a wonderful man. Uh, he's an intriguing man. He's a, he was a wonderful storyteller. 
and he has had a lasting impact on me through Leah and in the time that I knew him. And Grandan was one of those men that lived a life where you think he lived four lifetimes in one. I mean, uh, he'd lived till he was 95. And after he graduated from college, which was amazing that he went to college uh, back then, but he did, he went to college and then he enlisted in the army and he was in the army for four years. And then after he got out of the army, he came back to Middle Tennessee where he was from just for a little bit, enough to then move to Virginia for a few years and become a tree farmer and a salesman. And as he would say, he made some money in the tree business and there was a lot more to be made, but Middle Tennessee was calling him back. And really, it was a young lady who was calling him back, and it became Leah's grandmother. That's the way he would tell the story. So he came back, and he took a job as an educator in the local, in the local school, elementary school, in their small, small town. And he was an educator for years, and he loved it, and he loved the children. He loves Liberty, Tennessee, where he's from. He loved Liberty. And he was pouring into these kids. But then one day, he thought, I think I want to do something else. And he found out that the... The postal service was hiring and he became a mailman. For like 11 years, he carried the mail. That's what they say in the South. I don't, I've never said that, but you carry the mail in the South. So he, he, for 11 years, he carried the mail. And then every time he'd drive by a school, something in him would say, I gotta go back there. And he got his master's degree and he went back into the education system and became an administrator. And he would, he would oversee a lot of the schools in the district. And he did that for double digit years. And then he looked around at the opportunities that the city had, and he had never had aspirations of running for politics, but he ran for mayor, and he was elected. And so now he's the mayor for how many years? Over 30 years. I was going to say 31. It was over 30 years he was the mayor after all of that. And on the day that he died in his home on a normal day, 95 years old, that morning, He was doing business of the city, sending emails, checking things, connecting with people. And he died on his couch that afternoon in his house, working right up until then. Now, he was a godly man. But the reason I share all those details with you is because one thing that struck me the most about Grandan and every story that he told, in his disposition, he always embraced his place wherever he was. And I don't mean geography. I don't even mean job. I mean his place. What I mean by that is he understood in every place that he was in, he was there to serve. He was there to bring about everything he had for the good of others and ultimately under the Lord. He loved the Lord. He sang a lot. Hymns, hummed, whistled. That's who Grandam was. And that's what struck me is that he always knew, he always embraced his place. And I just realized me and all of us, we oftentimes have difficulty embracing our place, don't we? I mean, the Bible talks about this. We, we want to be seen as more important than we are. Or some of us go to the other side, right? And we, we view ourselves more lowly than we are. And it's just sort of this false sense of humility, this, oh, woe is me. And some of us fall in the middle, but the Bible would have us embrace with confidence exactly our place wherever we are. And Grandan knew that. And I think the way to greatness, I know the way to greatness is through the low path of humility. And biblical humility is embracing your place wherever you are. It's embracing your place 
in life. And in this text, as Peter is finishing his letter, he is teaching us to embrace our place in three ways. First, he's teaching us to embrace our place under God's mighty hand. Then to embrace our place in the cosmic battle of redemption. And then to embrace our place in the protected family of God. First, look with me here. Verse six, humble yourselves or embrace your place. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Remember, Peter's original audience is suffering. They're being marginalized and he's writing to them to comfort them. Because when you suffer unjustly, what is your inclination? Oftentimes, it's to retaliate. And he's telling them not to. He's, he's telling them not only don't do that, but this is why. And this is where you get the strength not to retaliate, but to embrace your place. Now, this isn't new, this idea of humility. Think about the whole chapter. For four weeks in a row, we talked about submission, whether it's submission to the authorities around us in society, whether it's submission in relationship to one another in marriage, whether it's submission to governing, I'm sorry, not governing authorities, but authorities in the workplace, whether it's submitting to one another, loving one another earnestly. There is this reality, biblically, that the path to greatness is always embracing your place wherever you are. And here, he just comes out and says it. Listen, uh, you need to embrace your place under the mighty hand of God, first and foremost. Now, this phrase, mighty hand of God, it's the only place in the New Testament you'll find that phrase. Now, you'll find hand of God. And every time we see that phrase, hand of God, it's talking about the mighty acts of God. It's talking about the good things, uh, the acts of redemption, the acts of protection and provision. That's what happens when we see hand of God. But this phrase, mighty hand of God, is a throwback to the Exodus. You see the mighty hand of God referenced a lot in the Old Testament. And it's referring to the Exodus, which was the paradigmatic understanding of redemption. In other words, when people thought, how does God save his people? What did they think of? Well, they thought of Egypt when he, they were in bondage and slavery and God removed them out of that. And then every year, what would they do? They would celebrate it because that was how God saved his people. And so what Peter is saying is that we as Christians are in the second exodus. Jesus is removing his people from bondage and slavery to sin. And when we entrust in him, we should submit to him. But just like he's been telling us all throughout the book, that journey to eternal glory, or in the Old Testament, we understand the promised land, that journey is filled with challenges. That journey is filled with suffering, sometimes great suffering. And he's saying, knowing that, we still must embrace our place under the mighty hand of God. And to embrace your place under the mighty hand of God is to submit to his wise ordering of your life. In his wisdom, he has ordered your life in a certain way. And to submit to him, to embrace your place, it is to be faithful to the place he's put you. Not unlike Grand Anne. To embrace your place wherever he is, knowing that he is the Lord. Right? Obviously, the opposite of that would be pride. Right? Humble yourselves. In other words, don't be proud. And what I find so insidious about pride 
is that you don't know when you're prideful. I mean, other people see it in you and it's disgusting, right? When you see pride in someone else, it just turns your stomach. But pride is one of those things, you know, if you covet, you have an idea of that fact that that's happening. I mean, I'm not talking about whether you choose to engage it or, or not, but you kind of know when you're coveting. You kind of know when you're lusting. You kind of know when you're, when you're greedy. You kind of know when you are um, about to drop that piece of juicy information and gossip. You know that when it's happening. But the very nature of pride is that you're blind to it. And so he's telling them right off the bat, be aware of that. Be humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, this is the reason why this is important, is because all of our place in the world, first and foremost, is to realize that you are not God. You're not God. We have a place in the universe, but it's not God. And to embrace our place in the universe is to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, and this is why. You, me, our children, everyone, we were made to magnify, to lift up, to put on display, to image, to make known, to live for the name of another. That's what we were made for. And the beauty of it is because that's what we were made for, that's actually where you'll find your most joy. That's where you'll find your delight is when that is happening. When you find your place under the mighty hand of God and you exalt him and you praise him and you seek to image him in every area of your life, that is where you find the most joy. And pride subverts this by putting you in the place of God. That's what pride does. Pride always knows better. Pride is always arrogant. When we're prideful, functionally, what we say is, I believe my life would be better if I were in charge of ordering all circumstances. If I were in charge of giving myself the gifts, abilities, talents, opportunities that I think I should have. That would be a picture of pride. Because that's putting yourself in the place of God. So we could ask ourselves, where in our lives right now are we failing to embrace our place under the mighty hand of God? Where are you refusing to trust God's wisdom in the way that he's ordering your life right now? Or the way he has ordered your life? Or are you afraid that he might mistakenly order your life incorrectly in the future? Wherever that is, you and I are failing right now to embrace our place, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, if I gave you long enough, you would find a place where that's happening. You just would, because it is happening. So then the question we'd have to ask ourselves, well, Peter, how do we do this? How do we embrace our place? How do we humble ourselves in the areas that we're not right now? And there are many ways, but I think there are two ways we see in this passage. First, just look at the phrase, think of the phrase under the mighty hand of God. When you come to something that's mighty, it's bigger than you and it creates awe and wonder in you, doesn't it? 
I mean, I heard a story. I've never been to Niagara Falls, but I heard, heard two stories. First, I've heard that it's not that great. But then the one story that I'm going to tell you is that it's amazing. And what happened was is that these people were driving in in a convertible and they felt the mist of the falls before they saw the falls. That's pretty glorious. That's awe-inspiring. It, it creates this desire to want to go view and be in awe of this amazing thing that you feel its presence before you even see it, before you're even in the direct presence of it, right? And so for us, that I think we need to cultivate regular disciplines and practices of bringing ourselves to awe and wonder and worship of the Lord God. What are you doing in your life to cultivate those practices? Because you see, the only way you'll be humbled is to come up against something that you think is greater than you, that you think is mightier than you. That's how you're humbled. That's how you're put in your place. And the Lord is so kind, which we'll see in a second, and so good. But the fact that you're here at corporate worship is a fantastic step. I mean, this is crucial in us cultivating our awe and wonder of God together. Is it uh, regularly meditating as well on scripture? Is it prayer? Is it community? I hope it's all of those things. Where in your life are you cultivating these ongoing disciplines and practices of coming underneath the mighty hand of God to grow in awe and wonder and worship? And the second way that we embrace our place under the mighty hand of God is what he says in verse seven. Look with me here. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Nothing stings pride more than admitting that you cannot carry your own burdens. Nothing does that. So what happens is you and I are walking along the path of life, carrying our own burdens, thinking we're God, right? Because if you give your burdens away, you lose control. Don't know if you know that, but those are yours. You get to use them however you want as an excuse or whatever. You get to use those. Once you give those away, they're removed from you. You're no longer in control of those. You no longer can feel sorry for yourself for those. You no longer can use them as an excuse. And so, therefore, it's humbling. It's, it's coming in. It's a surrendering to the mighty hand of God. And it's saying, I can't carry my anxieties. And the picture is this, this word casting on is like when you would cast these, uh, a saddle or weights onto a donkey or something. And I know it's like, wow, you're gonna compare Jesus to a donkey? Yeah, bear with me, okay? So you're walking along, you realize that you no longer can bear the weight of your burdens and you cast them on this animal, on this donkey or horse that is made to do that that can carry them, that has the strength to do it. And that's what Peter is saying. You humble yourself by coming to the place where you must cast your anxieties, cast your worries, cast your fears onto another. Namely, you must cast your anxieties and worries onto the mercy and grace of God. And only a humble, weak person can do that. You know that, right? That's what the gospel requires is for you to be completely empty-handed, for you to come to him and say, I need you to take this. I need you to change me. I can't do this on my own. I need the righteousness of another. I need the credit of another. That's what the gospel is. And that's how we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And this is wonderful. Eight, verse eight, beginning. Actually, at verse seven at the end. 
casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. And in community Bible reading, this is one of the main ways I adore God is I see his beauty in his provision everywhere. I see his beauty and kindness in drawing me to repentance, not out of fear in terms of him crushing me, but in terms of life and provision and grace and mercy. And I see him as beautiful because he cares. And I'm blown away that the God of the universe cares. Why would he have to do that? Well, it's because he's who he is. And he has to be true to his character. He's perfectly integral. He has perfect integrity. He always acts out of who he is. And he's perfect. And he cares. And that's the God that we worship. And when we cultivate worship and awe of that God, it changes us. And we embrace our place willingly and delighting under the, under the mighty hand of God. So we do need to embrace that. The second thing, second area we need to embrace our place is in the cosmic battle of redemption. Sounds really epic, doesn't it? Let me tell you about that. So Peter turns his attention now to another command. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Here's the other command. Be sober-minded, be watchful. All right, uh, He's encouraged his readers to be sober-minded before. So what's different about this? Is he just repeating this? Well, he actually adds something new. He doesn't just say, be sober-minded for the first time. He says, be sober-minded because you have an adversary, the devil. And look at this graphic imagery, gruesome, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Think about the animal planet or BBC's world or anything you've seen where you see this terrifying footage of a lion pacing, prowling, seeking someone to devour. That's the image that Peter gives. And what's interesting is in verses one through five, which Mike Allen, as I mentioned, preached two weeks ago, you have the flock and shepherd imagery happening, right? Now, that's important because if you think about a flock and shepherd, if a flock or a shepherd knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that there was a lion prowling in the grass over there, they'd probably fall asleep easily, wouldn't they? No, of course not. They would be watchful. They would be sober-minded. Someone would always be on watch and they would huddle together and stay close. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. He gives this image of flock and shepherd remaining watchful, knowing that there is a lion prowling around, waiting for someone to devour. Now, Peter wants his readers to know that the persecution they are feeling is not merely individual. And this is important, as I'm about to make my point. But until I do, come with me, look at this. Right after he tells them about this imagery, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter wants his readers to know that the persecution they're feeling is not merely due to individual malice and deceit by people, but there's actually a personal evil force behind society's orientation to hate them. 
It's the first time he's done it in the entire book and he wants to leave them with that. Listen, just know, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's something more to what's happening. Now, some of you read this and you think, "Mm, wow, okay, so I believe that there's an evil one. I believe there's a personal devil, but surely my life isn't exciting enough for him to give a rip about me. Right? I, I don't quite do enough that's special for him really to target me. He probably targets other people. I'm somewhere in the middle. It's not strategic to pay attention to me. But Peter won't let you think that. Peter is placing you. He's asking you to embrace your place in the fact there's a cosmic battle of redemption happening. And you need to know this. You need to know this right now that the devil hates you. He hates you. And this is why he hates you. This is why he wants to devour you because he is the prince of the world. And what did Jesus say about the world? The world hates me. And because you belong to me, the world hates you. And because the world hates you, the devil hates you. And he's seeking to devour you. He wants to eat you. He wants to mock you. He wants to laugh at you. He he wants to scheme against you. Now think about that lion that you see on TV that's prowling. What is he waiting for? What's he waiting for always? That poor straggler. I mean, there's just this animal. You see it, right? You see it because you're in the aerial footage, which would be really nice if you were being hunted. But there's aerial footage and you see the lion and you see this poor hungry antelope and just eating grass or drinking water and everyone else is in a group moving on. And you're like, bro, get in there. Get in there. He's coming after you. It's the same way with us. You see, the devil wants to kick them while they're down. That's why he tells them you're casting your anxieties on him. But in the midst of that, the devil is just waiting for you. And why is it so powerful to know that you're not the only one is because the way temptation and trial works is you begin to believe that you're the only one. And when you believe, no one else is as sick as me. No one else has the thoughts that I have. No one else struggles like I struggle. No one else yells at their kids like I yell at their kids. No one else cheats and steals at work like I cheat and steal. No one else dreams of this or that, that I know is wrong, but I do it anyway. And as that lie begins to get in you, you just sort of back away. And how do you stand firm? You stand firm in the faith. What is the faith? The faith is the fact that Jesus defeated the enemy. So that lion, that lion is tethered. He's chained up. But the problem is, is that we just kind of drift towards him. Instead of standing firm in the faith, standing firm, we just sort of drift. There's a cosmic battle. And I think that some of us, when we see devour, we think the devil wants to kill me. Maybe not. Maybe some, sometimes he does. Sometimes he wants you dead, actually dead, martyred, whatever. That happens. It still happens. But I think a lot of times, if you look in Second Peter, It has to do with wooing you back to the futile ways that you left. That's what Peter's talking about over and over and over and over and over. You're just being wooed back to the futile ways. And before long, you stop having a living hope 
because you're putting your hope in dead things. Things where life won't be found. You're building your righteousness in other places except casting yourself upon the Lord. So maybe, maybe he wants to devour you by wooing you back to the ways of the world. And I think the danger for the Christian is not that we aren't equipped to resist him, we are. But it's the fact that we fail to stay awake to the reality that he's there. We forget to find our place in this cosmic battle of redemption every day. I think the worst thing that can happen to us is we become isolated. When this happens, we're sitting ducks. Yesterday, um, I was uh, reading a blog that talks about new books that are coming out that I might find interesting and because it's for me, the whole blog is for me. And I saw a book that was written by uh, Phil Riken, who is the current president of Wheaton College. And the title of the book is When Trouble Comes. And they have a blurb, right, with quotes from the book that try to entice you. And this did entice me. This was the line they quoted. This is from him, the author. He said, quote, I started to wonder how I would end it all. And he meant his life. How I would end it all. So I watched this 11-minute interview where they talked to him about where he got to this point and how he got to this point, And then what brought him out of it. And he talks about the fact that he began to have trials and temptation in, in various parts of his life and in the institution that he's the president of. And he got to this point to where he believed that he was isolated. He believed that he was the only one having these struggles and these sufferings. And then he thought, oh, I can get over it because this isn't my temperament. I'm not normally like this. I'm not prone to depression. I'm not prone to these types of things. But for him, he realized when he thought to himself first, I now know why people kill themselves. Then second, how would I do that? And at that point, he reached out. He reached out for help. He realized that the lion was nipping at him. It's tethered, remember, but he had drifted so far, he turns around, he's like, there's a lion right there, nipping at me, drawing blood right now. And so they asked him, how did you come out of this? And he said, very ordinary things. Scripture, the sacraments, And he said, even though corporate worship was so hard, I went and I realized it was fellowship, it was community, it was gospel community that brought me back. Now, he's not arrived. He hasn't arrived. This is a lifelong journey for all of us. But this is the point that I wanna make for us. You need to make a choice this morning, some of you. You need to humble yourself Embrace your place, not only under the mighty hand of God, but also in this cosmic battle of redemption. And you need to realize that the lion is drawing blood because you think you can handle something on your own. You're so isolated, no one knows. And you're prideful because pride tells you that you're different. Pride tells you that you don't need others. Pride tells you that you're special, that you don't need help. And I would ask you this, do you know what your Achilles heel is? I had to write a paper my final year in seminary, a 10-page paper on what is the number one thing that has the potential to take me out of vocational ministry. That was a very important paper. 
Do you know what that is for you? If you don't, it's pride. If you don't know, it's pride. You say, well, I don't have time to reflect. Okay. Make a choice now. Because the devil, your adversary, not the adversary, your adversary, prowls around gleefully, happily, like a lion waiting to devour me and waiting to devour you. We all need to make a choice today. We all need to cast ourselves on God's mercy and grace, his ordinary grace of fellowship, community, corporate worship, the word, prayer, worship music in, when in, your, in your house, singing hymns as you're cleaning, as you're putting your kids to bed, everything. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we need to find our place there and we need to find our place in the cosmic battle of redemption. You are a child of God. You are precious and that's why the devil hates you. So we need to find our place under the mighty hand of God in this cosmic battle of redemption and lastly and most succinctly in the gracious promise of restoration. Look with me now in verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you look at these words in the original language, all of them are tied together by an idea of strength. So if you look at confirm or restore means restore to wholeness or strength. Confirm means to confirm one's strength and validity. To strengthen means to strengthen and to establish means to establish in firmness or strength. The semantic range of all of these words finds its home in some constellation of the idea of strength. Now, why these words? Because there are a lot of true words in the Bible. There are a lot of good words that Peter could have used. These are true, but other words are true. Why did he use these words? Remember, this is a letter to actual people in actual circumstances by an actual pastor who's trying to comfort them. And for us, Peter wants them and for us to know that when we find ourselves in a low and weak place, it is for God's glory but it's not forever. It's not forever. God will exalt us just like he did Jesus. He will exalt you. He will exalt you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. He will confirm you. And here's the amazing thing. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with his strength. Where else is he gonna give you the strength? It's his own strength. He doesn't go in you and find strength and say, I can work with that. That's good, I can work with that. You got 50%, I can do the rest. I can do the other 50%. No, no. That's something else that's not called Christianity. That's self-help or something. I fall for it all the time. I wanna draw out one more thing. Looking at the time, I'm gonna skip that. I'm gonna draw out one more thing, okay? I wanna draw out the kindness 
in the beauty of our God. Look at this phrase. Verse 10. The God of all grace who has called you. Just think of the difference between the enemy who prowls to devour you and the God of all grace who calls you to himself, who calls you eternal glory. Let's compare this with the prowling lion. What, is, what does the lion want to do? The prowling lion waits for us to become isolated in our pride and weakness because remember, you can't see your own pride and pride won't let you admit your weakness. And weakness is the prerequisite for the gospel. So that's a vicious cycle, isn't it? And the prowling lion just waits and waits and waits and you just kind of come closer and closer because remember, he's tethered. And then he pounces to destroy. Those of you who are reading with us in community Bible reading, we're in the Gospel of John just last week, maybe the week before, can't remember. Last week maybe. Chapter 10. What does the evil one come to do? Only, only, nothing else. He comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There's that, but then there's the the God of all grace who comes to us in our pride and weakness and calls us back to himself. And he calls us into communion with him. And he calls us into community with others. And he promises to keep us and to love us and to transform us. And this is what Peter's letter is about. This is what all 17 weeks were about. Fundamentally, that we have a living hope in Jesus and it shapes everything. It shapes everything. And this is the type of church that I want New City to become. We already are, and I want us to increasingly become a church that is transformed by a living hope. Because when we're transformed by a living hope, we're freed up to love others. As Peter said, we're freed up to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, we're freed up. We don't have to prepare a life for ourselves. It's already for us. We're secure so we can actually give our life away to others. We can go out to everywhere we live, everywhere we work, everywhere we play, and we can actually be on mission together. And then we come back together and love one another. And people see that and it's so beautiful. They say, who has a God like that? And we say, we do. And let me tell you, it's even better. We didn't earn anything. But he pursued us in our weakness. He pursued us in our shame. He pursued us in our pride. And he humbled us, not by backhanding us, but by showing us who he was. And when he showed us who he was in awe and wonder, we embraced our place of worship. And then you know what? We realized we're part of this cosmic battle and we embraced our place there, but then we also embraced our place in the reality that there is a promise of security. There is a promise of restoration. You see, as we increasingly become those types of people, then we will see gospel transformation happen everywhere that we go. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that, Holy Spirit, you took something that I said today and you placed it into the hearts of everyone here, not because I'm special, but because your word is true. And we all long for truth and wholeness and transformation. And we ask you would do that. We also thank you for the letter of 1 Peter. We thank you that there was so much gospel transformation in Peter's life that he went from a scared, 
man, filled with the fear of man, so much so that as soon as things, the heat got turned up, he tried to stab a guy in a garden, and then he couldn't stand up to a 15-year-old girl, and then Peter had, Paul had to rebuke him to his face because he was so afraid of what James and those from Jerusalem would think about the fact that he was eating with Gentiles. But yet you changed him. And 20 years later, he writes this letter, not pointing us to him, but pointing us to Jesus. I pray that we would be a people who wouldn't point anyone to ourselves, but through ourselves, point them to Jesus. As we respond now, I ask that you would comfort us and change us even now. In Jesus' name.